Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Wider Goals, a podcast that explores how individuals and organizations can engage with the superpower of sport to create a better world for all. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and my guest today is Neil Duffy, Chief Executive and Founder of 17 Sport, a purpose-driven B Corp specialising in impact marketing at the intersection of sport and business. As you'll hear, Neil was born in South Africa, so experienced firsthand possibly the best example in our lifetime of how sport can positively impact societal change during the early 1990s, when the end of apartheid coincided with his home nation hosting the Rugby World Cup. Understandably, it was a transformational moment for Neil, who was able to reevaluate his own role and opportunity within the business of sports marketing, finding his own true purpose to help make the world a better place through the power of sport. So let's get straight into it. This is Wider Goals with Neil Duffy. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Matt. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, I've been looking forward to, to speaking to you actually because um, I mean I actually I first came across 17 Sport and, and subsequently your book and your podcast when I was doing some research about 18 months ago uh, trying to find any existing links between conscious capitalism and sport and uh, your book Legacy Sport which I would highly recommend and I'll put a link in in the program notes it's full of information and inspiration in the form of first-hand accounts and case studies from organizations and individuals doing good while doing well, as you put it. Um, And bringing that purpose revolution from business to life, and it includes some of the standard bearers, if you like, of the conscious capitalism movement like Unilever and some standout examples of purpose-driven sports series like uh, Formula E and the Ocean Race. There's also over only five or six pages, Neil, your own personal story and, and a particular moment for you where capitalism, sport and consciousness came together when you, you left Octagon and, and took a career break. Can you tell us more about that moment and, and what happened for you around that time? Sure. Um, I think it, it it all came together in a moment, but I think there was uh, a number of things leading up to that moment that 
um, culminated in me deciding to do what I do. Uh, I was I was born in Africa um, and grew up and experienced firsthand the poverty in Africa, but also the power of sport. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate to live through the the transition from white power to black power in South Africa. And I don't know whether you um, saw or have seen the movie Invictus. Yeah. Um, but um, you know the story of Rugby World Cup and how Nelson Mandela used the power of rugby to heal a divided nation. Um, for me, that was certainly one moment where I, I kind of took a step back and and asked myself the question, is sport playing to its full superpower the way that it's currently constructed? Um, because that was the exception rather than the norm, you know, how Nelson Mandela grasped that opportunity to to drive, a, a, I guess, a social agenda. Um, but it also gave me confidence to start trying trying things differently in the world of sponsorship. And so uh, back in South Africa uh, in the sort of second half of the 90s, we started um, using every sponsorship that we did, we'd used as an opportunity to drive some kind of what we called a development component. Um, and that was really to try and use the the, the event or the the, the sporting um, activity as a platform to trying to help to address some of the imbalances from the past. So, you know, black people in South Africa were denied things like access to education, healthcare, kind of things that you and I would take for granted. Uh, but for, for the majority of the population, they didn't have access to those things. So we always try to find a way to use sport and sponsorship as a way of providing that access. And what we learned was that when we did that, the sponsorships outperformed the traditional ones. Um, surprise, surprise. You know, it's possible to do good while you do well. Um, and uh, and so that, that was really the beginning of it all. Um, and then when I moved to Octagon to take on the role of president of Octagon Europe, Middle East Africa, um, to be honest, I just found that the the European market wasn't ready for that conversation. Um, they were still very fixated on the traditional um, approach to sponsorship, you know, sponsorship as an awareness builder, sponsorship as a way to drive engagement with the fans, to increase, enhance the fans' experience around their passions. Still the kind of language you hear today in many agencies uh, in the world. And that that kind of gave me the confidence, I guess, to realize, well, maybe it's time to, I'm not going to get done what I want to get done in this space. Time for me to move on and go and do my next thing. Um, so that was the kind of moment where I transitioned from the traditional world of sports marketing to what I do now, which I kind of describe as purpose-led sports marketing. Um, and it's really just about, you know, at the end of the day, I think recognizing sports real superpower, uh, which is to be used as a platform to make the world a better place. Um, and something that I don't think enough sports practitioners understand, have grasped, embrace, um, take advantage of. And how's the the journey been since then, Neil? I mean, you said that the European market in particular wasn't quite ready to make that transition at that time. What does the what does the field look like now? Yeah, so you know, between now and and then, so that's um, scary thought, but it's what fifteen years. Um, <laughs> I when I first started, uh, so after I left Octagon, I took a year off, had a lot of time to think about how I wanted to do what I was going to do next, um, and. Uh, the first thing I decided to do was just to get out there and start talking to people. Um, and I spoke to brands, properties, um, people involved, nonprofits involved in the space. And and what I learned was that people were interested in this idea that you know it's possible to do good while you do well in sponsorship or in sport, but nobody was really ready to embrace or to change the way that they operate. Um, and I think the reason for that is, I mean, we've all heard the term, the innovator's dilemma. You know, the when things are good, there's no impetus to change. And sports had it good for a long time, right? So the, still today, the prevailing business model in sport is very um, 
profit orientated. Um, and it's worked. There's like a template that everybody uses. They all go to, everybody goes to school to learn how to do traditional sports marketing and you go and work for a property or brand and you do traditional sports marketing and it works. Um, and so there hasn't been much impetus to change. Um, so, but I got the opportunity to work on three projects that I think, um, I, what I, what I recognize is whether I needed some case studies to be able to show people that um, this stuff works. And I can't believe I was so naive, but when I look back on it now, when I, when I first started talking to people about this message, the message was, this is the right thing to do. Um, and that wasn't strong enough, right? When, I, when, the, when the penny dropped for me that you need to show people how this is good for business, or this is good for their bottom line, when I figured out, when I, when I realized that, um, when I, um, the, and I started to change the narrative, that's when people started to pay attention. Um, so I got to work on some interesting projects, uh, the 34th America's Cup uh, in San Francisco, which we led as a purpose-led event and um, set a whole lot of firsts for America's Cup, you know, very commercially successful, the most sustainable America's Cup. In fact, major international sporting event ever at that time. We were carbon neutral and zero waste. Um, first major international event to achieve that. And on the back of that, we built a whole story around, a narrative around um, how this race would be serve as a platform to um, address ocean health and not only raise awareness amongst the public around the state of the oceans and why they need help, but also to uh, drive actions connected to actually addressing ocean health. So that's a really important insight is that this is not just about telling stories, it's about doing stories. Um, that, you know, the best programs are those that do both of those two things. So that was a great success. Um, and also very commercial, as I think I said, a very successful commercial program. I then got to work on a project called the One Will Play Project. Um, an inventor by the name of Tim Jarnigan was inspired to make it possible for every kid in the world to play with a real football or soccer ball because he'd seen kids in Africa playing with a Coke can and a rock and it, it touched him deeply. And he learned that the reason that kids play with those kind of things is because one, they can't afford a real football. And even if they can, they, footballs from the Western world don't last very long in third world environments. Uh, because they're not designed to do that. So Tim decided to invent the world's first almost indestructible soccer ball, football, never goes flat, doesn't need a pump, and as a consequence of that can survive the harshest conditions. And so I helped Tim to bring that idea to market, um, and we put a big partnership together with Manchester United and with Chevrolet that made it possible for 30 million kids around the world to play with a real football, uh, which was amazing. And again, this concept it was good for Chevrolet, it was good for Man United, um, it was good for the community and it was also good for Tim um, because, you know, I had a viable business, which actually was a B corporation um, built on the back of all of this. Then I got to work on Super Bowl um, as chair of the sustainability committee. And we led, we developed a strategy for that event, which was built around a purpose of using the event as a platform to improve the lives of young people. Um, a third of the population in the Bay Area live in poverty. Can you believe it? the headquarters of Google, Facebook, Apple, all these, you know, basically the heartbeat of the world's technology industry, yet two-thirds, one-third of the population live in poverty. So we decided to use the event as a platform to address that problem, um, and it worked. And still today, that was in 2016, and, um, you know, five, six years later, it's still the most sustainable, the most giving, the most commercially successful, the most engaging Super Bowl ever, and I maintain because we led with purpose. That's what differentiated us from, from other, you know, from other Super Bowls and why we got the support of the local community. So that's a long way of answering your question, but to get us to where we are today, you know, armed with those three case studies, um, I'm, I'm finding that people are a lot more receptive to the message and a lot more interested. 
But I, I think, Matt, the thing that really made the difference was COVID because COVID mm. was, a, I think, a wake-up call for the sports industry. And I don't know if you remember back to the times when uh, you know, the NBA announced that they were closing their season down um, and government started to, dis- to declare that sport is not considered an essential service and therefore short sport will be shut down. And a whole bunch of people running sport went, holy crap, how can we not be an essential service? Because we thought we were because we're yeah. providing all this great entertainment for people. And, but no, you're not an essential service because you actually don't matter. When yeah. times get tough, you don't matter. Um, and so that, that, I think, was the real, the real tipping point um, in terms of getting a, a more and more, a bigger chunk of the sports sector to start realizing that there's a different way to go about doing business in sport and to using sport to its true potential and embracing, as you, the term you use, a, conscious, a more conscious approach to how they uh, operate capitalistically within the environment of sport. So I've seen it. So we've seen it. So we've seen a sh- we've seen a shift change since COVID, and it's on an upward trajectory right now, which is great. Timing's everything, right? Well, that is great because it wasn't always clear or certain that that would be the case. In fact, I remember in your book, which was written during COVID, right, and you were kind of cautiously optimistic that this would be a turning point. But but I, I think many people's experience, or certainly mine, uh, in a post-COVID world, is that for many people there has been a shift to a more individualist, independent kind of state of mind. You know, some people are, are using it as an opportunity to to be more conscious and more caring and look after others. Actually, s- some others are thinking, well, actually, I'm just going to look after myself here because they've realised that there are systems in place that are not going to protect and look after them. So. I just wonder, on a, on a bigger level, certainly in terms of sport, is that really being embraced in in the right way? What's, what's your experience been uh, so far now? Mm. Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? It's very complex. Mm. I mean, what you're talking about has been the status quo in the US for the last 30 years, right? Very yeah. individu- individualistic society. I think Europe is less... In, Europe, I think, culturally is less individualistic than the US. Um, and I think that's why I've actually moved from San Francisco to Paris. I now live in Paris. And the reason that I did that was because we were finding that the conversations we were having in Europe were at a much more advanced level than they are in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is still very, we, we find very, um, and there are obviously exceptions, right? And I'm generalizing here. Um, the U.S. is still very transactional in its approach. It's very CSR. It's very common, yeah. whatever's required at the moment to, to keep things going kind of thing. Whereas I think, I think there's an inbred sense of community, greater inbred sense of community in Europe. Um, which lends itself to that. And we, we're certainly starting to see that play out. Um, but back to your, to your question of, of you know, why, why is this relevant to sport? Because at the end of the day, um, there are a couple of, I think there are a couple of drivers here. Um, the, the first is, and in no particular order, the first is that um, I think the fans really care about this stuff. And I think all the research that we're seeing is showing that, particularly the younger audiences, they expect organizations to stand up for something more than just profits. They want them to take a position. They want them to solve problems. They want them to be uh, contributors, basically filling in the gap for government uh, to a large extent. Um, and so those organizations that are stepping up and doing that are, are, are seeing the benefits of it, right? And we've both seen the research that supports that. Yeah. Um, so if you're a brand and you want to remain relevant to your customers, what do you do? You do what your customers want you to do, right? Because if you go in a different direction, then they're going to, you're going to alienate yourself from your customers. And I'm oversimplifying it, but that, at the end of the day, is, I, I think is a truth. Um, so why do brands sponsor sport? Uh, because it's about positive association. It's about access to audience. It's about being able to tell positive stories. 
So that's why brands are starting now to reconsider the types of properties that they invest in because they want to be able to use sport for its superpower, not for something else. And so the properties that are embracing this are the ones that are getting the most attraction and the most interest from sponsors. That's certainly what we're seeing. And the ones that aren't are the ones that are starting to fall out of favor. And so we've done a number of assignments over the last three years where brands have said to us, please help us to reevaluate our sponsorship portfolio, not based on their reach or on their audience profile, which is the normal stuff, but on their fit from a purpose perspective. So how do these properties and brands in terms of what they're doing and how they're behaving and how they're acting, how do they support the narrative around how we're trying to position our brand and how we're acting as an organization, which is really interesting, right? Yeah. So that's happening. So the, fan, so the fans are driving that. Well, that, I mean, that, that's great. And I, that helps the business case, right? But in terms of establishing that purpose, you know, for something like the Ocean Race or, or Formula E, the purpose is clear. It's a, the message is around sustainability. How about other organizations that don't have uh, a, an intrinsic established purpose uh, necessarily? Or maybe they do, but they've lost sight of it. What role can we play in, in, in bringing them back? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just figure out figure out what it is. Yeah, they just need to they just need to they just need to figure out what it is and it's and um every organization can have a purpose. I mean, it doesn't have to be um I mean, you say formula E, it's kind of more a natural fit, right? Because it's about a transition to renewable future and mobility and all that kind of stuff, so it kind of fits and makes sense. With the ocean race, it's again like with America's Cup um, you know, Ocean Race did exactly what we what we did at America's Cup. They they focused on ocean health and used that as a as a as a rallying call and a point of difference. Uh, but I believe every single sports organization has some relevance in society, and it just needs to figure out what that is, and then double down on trying to use its influence, resources, platform to address that issue. So, if you're a football club and you're in a community where there's a problem with knife crime, then and you're called Arsenal and your sponsor and your partner is Adidas, then you you, you, you develop an initiative called No More Red, and it's all around reducing the incidence of, rice, of um, knife crime in that community. Mm. That's just one example, right, of how, how you can use... So what's the connection between football and knife crime? There isn't an obvious one, right? But the connection comes from the place where, where, that, where that club lives and operates and the community that it's a part of. Yep. And every community has issues, right? So whether you're a football club or a cricket club or a rugby club or a chess club... You have a, you're, you're of the community, otherwise you wouldn't exist. Yep. Figure out what's the problem in the community that you can solve and become more than just an entertainment platform. Become actually a platform that's a contributor towards solving the problems in your community. Yeah. And for some people, the community is global. For others, it's a local town. It doesn't matter, I believe. Yeah, and football is an interesting case study in that respect, isn't it? Because these community football clubs, like in the town where I live in Huddersfield, they existed to serve the communities. Right, that is their purpose. That's why they started. That was their original purpose. Yeah, indeed. Exactly. And that exactly. can be done in, in lots of different ways. Globally, though, you know, I, I look at football at the minute, Neil, and I'm a big fan of, of football. And you have something like the Women's World Cup that just took place now, which was such a, a huge success globally um, with a great message. And then you see Neymar taking a private Boeing 747 to, to Saudi Arabia. And it's a little depressing <laughs> as well, you know, as a... As a global product, it's um, yeah, it's it can be a little disheartening as a fan who does believe in these um, the, the the power of, of the game for change and what it really should be standing for. You know, Matt, it's just a reflection of society, right? Yeah, 
the society, unfortunately, 20%, only 20% of society really cares about this stuff. Maybe 50% at a shove. But there's still a lot of organizations, a lot of people who believe that don't believe in climate change. Mm. You know, they don't. So, so that's, that's the reality that we're dealing with, right? So what do you do? You throw, throw your arms up and give up and get depressed about it, or you try and take action and you try to use the influence that you have and, and, those, and to, to collaborate with others who share that same point of view to make a point and to show, show that there is a different way. And so that's, that's the approach that we take. I mean, our name, 17 Sport, relates back to the Sustainable Development Goals. Yep. Um, and Goal 17 is about partnerships because you know, we are huge believers in the power of collaboration and partnerships because really these problems are too big to solve anyone, for any one organization to solve. We need to come together collectively to solve them and so let's bring the people who have the same intent who have the same level of consciousness okay i mean to put it bluntly who have that same level of consciousness that understand the issues and understand the power of sport to play a role in contributing towards building a better future and a better world um, and hopefully more and more of us will start doing that and after a while it'll become it'll become normal but it'll, it's going to take time so how do you go about doing that with 17 sport i know uh, along with uh, with fabian page your 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 partner in this there are some individual athlete collaborations that take place, uh, such as um, with I think it's Serena Williams, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So Fabian, before um, before Fabian and I joined forces about almost four years ago, Fabian had his own um, uh, sports marketing business that was focused on talent representation. Yeah. Um, and Fabian has for a long time believed in the in the power of the athlete voice to drive social environmental change um, and he got to practice that with the biggest athlete in the world Serena Williams uh, which is great um, Fabian was part of the team that managed her and was responsible for her non-tennis brand helping to develop her non-tennis brand uh, particularly outside of North America so the, all the stuff around women's empowerment and gender equity that we know Serena Williams stands for yeah. um, and 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 was able to put together some partnerships with the likes of AXA and a core group who partnered with Serena not because she was the world's number one women's tennis player, but because she was an advocate for for women's for gender equity and and for women's rights. Um, the fact that she was the number one tennis player in the world was great, okay, because it gave her the reach and the 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 the, the podium to be able to spread her message. Um, and so, yeah, so part of what we do at Seventeen Sport is we you know drawing on that experience is we have a very small portfolio of assets, small very small portfolio of athletes. That we um, that we manage, and the starting point is always to try and help them to refine their purpose, to help them to be clear on what it is that they want to they want to fix, they want to help fix. Um, partner them with organisations that are aligned, um, and then help them to execute against that. Um, but it's only a part of what we do. You know, it's um, the the bulk of our business is really around around working with brands and properties. Yeah. Um, again, because we think we can get bigger scale, achieve greater impact um, at that level. Um, yeah, although I guess when you get some an athlete with the impacts of someone like Serena Williams, you're you're, you're able to do it at that bigger level. And, and, and I'm interested to know, Neil, about this. We, we talked before briefly about individualism, which is a massive element of being a top athlete. Right, is doing everything you can to make sure that you operate at your best and not really need to think beyond that. Um, how is that transition, or how, how important is that transition, and and how difficult is it? to 
help an athlete make that transition because ultimately if that's all they care about if all Neymar cares about is is playing football and making money then why would he care about getting on a, a Boeing 747 right um but 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 fundamentally all all athletes share this kind of individualist kind of drive uh, as as a primary instinct right yeah yeah it's it's interesting isn't it so so one i would challenge whether athletes are all individually driven you know, if you're playing a part, if you're part of a team, there is very diff- There's a team ethos that's very important. So yes, you're an individual within that team, but there's a team. Successful teams are not made up of individuals. I don't believe. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that point. We can we can discuss that over beer. Um, and even I was actually chatting to a track and field athlete yesterday. Um, she's a 200 meter runner, and she said, she said, you know, although I'm p- participating in an individual discipline, I'm actually part of a team, mm. um, and and um, I need that team around me to be successful. So when I'm when I'm on the starting blocks and I'm you know for my 21 seconds or whatever doing my 200 meters, yes, I'm on my own. But for everything else around it, I'm part of a team. I'm part of a team in my training. I'm part of my team in my um, when I go to competitions with the rest of the rest of the the, the club or the, the team that I'm representing. So anyway, so that so I think athletes, yes, they are individuals, um, but they're also part of a team. And I, why I bring that up is that I think that that team has a great influence over how an athlete um, behaves. One, so I think those teams around athletes have a huge role to play in terms of helping athletes to understand the potential they have to contribute towards driving change. Um, but the second thing is that I think that what we find anyway is that, that purpose is a very much a, a kind of intrinsic thing. We, we kind of look at purpose on a continuum. You know, on the one end you have philanthropy and on the other end you have purpose. And the extent to which you integrate doing good into your everyday life, if you're, if you're an individual, or into your everyday actions if you're a company, determines how purposeful you are. Um, and those individuals that, I mean, you use the word consciousness, it's kind of like, how con- you know, what's your level of progress from a consciousness level? And some, some individuals are more, more advanced than others. It's just reality. It doesn't matter whether they're athletes or, or doctors or yeah. teachers. You know, everybody's at a different place in that journey. So what's important is to find those athletes that are at the right place in their journey, that they are searching for something new, something different, um, and are ready to onboard this different mindset and this different approach. You can't, you can't force them to do it. it has to, for this to work, it has to come from within, yeah. um, is our belief. Whether you're an athlete or whether you're, if you're a company, your leadership, your CEO, your chairman, your chairperson, they need to, believe, they need to be ready to take the company on that journey. If they're not, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Um, and so that's a key insight. So one of the first things we always do is we try and gauge where does this person, where does this individual, where does this organization sit in terms of their level of commitment to wanting to use their platform to drive the kind of change they want to see happen. Um, if they're ready, then you can ha- we find we can help them. And it's just about providing structure at the end of the day. There's often a lot of education required. You know, athletes, uh, we, we can't assume that every athlete is an expert on environmental matters or on social matters, mm. just like most people aren't. So there's a big education piece up front to expose them to what are the issues so that they can, through that process, try and identify what resonates with them. And often there's some personal connection. There's something that happened in their family or some experience that they've had that took them to a place that where they're interested in something. And then once you've done that, um, we use a thing called design thinking. Um, so it's a, just a, a process to guide people through um, uh, uh, a process of identifying what it is that matters to them so that we, 
the outcome of which can be us developing a strategy for them. And then once we've developed that strategy, we put the partnerships in place because, again, it's not about them on their own. Who are the nonprofits that they're going to partner with? Who are the brands they're going to partner with? We put that ecosystem of partners together. Um, and then once we've done that, we, we execute against that and help them to tell their story um, through those part and with those partners and to be involved in doing programs with those partners. So that's kind of the, the process that it goes through. But so as to your example earlier of, of you know, uh, will top world football are taking a jet to go somewhere? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you an interesting story. When I was at Super Bowl, we, we, uh, we wanted to build a, an athlete program for our, our environmental program. Um, and we did a, did a study of every single NFL player. And we couldn't find one, this is back in 2016, we couldn't find one NFL player that we could authentically put on a platform to represent us. Wow. To talk about the topic. Interesting, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the environmental stuff's more complicated than the social stuff. I think you'll find that, you know, generally there are a lot more athletes care and are involved in social issues than environmental issues. Um, and it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. It's probably also yeah. a reflection of society. Um, yeah, and, and, and of course... But, but people and, change, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's hope so. I mean, and, and also, like you said, it's I mean, a reflection of society on a, on a macro level, but also individuals too. I, I picked a bad example in, in terms of... Um, of Neymar and um, there are plenty of good ones too and and and, and like you said I fully subscribe yeah. to that idea of, of team players as well it's not and you know but, but it's but it's interesting because it's not it's not one or the other right so yeah. let me take someone like Mbappe so Mbappe got very heavily criticized um, or him and the team because they took a flight to play a game instead of instead of taking the train and in the press conference I don't know if you remember this instance with the press conference where him and the manager were um, of PSG were questioned on this topic. They started laughing and made some joke about something that was very um, demonstrated a lack of sensitivity to the issue. Yeah. Um, six months later, he's now standing up and starting to um, take a position on social things, um, which is progress, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, because I think he's also growing up. He's a young kid. I mean, he's how old is he? Twenty two or something? Yeah. Isn't he? Yeah. You know, he's you know he's a young kid. Imagine what when I was twenty two, I wasn't really too keyed into all this stuff no. you know so huge pressure on these on these young athletes to to play this role in society and so you know he's learning he's becoming wiser um and you know if i make a prediction in five years time he'll be a major global advocate for making the world a better place through football i really think he will yeah. you look at his family background and where he comes from when he's ready he'll do it yeah. um but he's got to go on his own journey between now and then to get there well, that's something for us optimists <laughs> to look forward to. <laughs> what about what about the the, the present, Neil? In, in your experience, it might be difficult for you to kind of put um, exact kind of figures or percentages around this. But generally speaking, what is the um, disposition of current sports leaders that you speak to within organisations, from a commercial side, but also from a sporting side, perhaps? to engage uh with purpose and to and to uh take this me this message on you know yeah so um i don't know the answer to that question as far as properties are concerned mm. i don't have any hard uh, statistical data to give you what i can tell you anecdotally from the conversations that we have is that um and this is across the board there are more and more leaders of sports properties are starting to ask starting to interrogate um, the space and starting to ask questions around what could we do differently, do better, 
in order to remain relevant. And why? Because their sponsors are asking them to do it. Yeah. Okay. What I can tell you is that from a brand perspective, um, there's a high level of interest. Uh, we commissioned our, our own survey um, about six months ago called the Sport and Purpose Survey. We spoke to 100 of the world's leading marketers um, and asked them this very question. And the two key questions were, you know, to what extent does, uh, do, you, uh, uh, do you believe that purpose is important? And the other is, how are, what role do you think that sport can play in helping you to bring your purpose to life and to tell your purpose story? And in both cases, the responses were plus 70% of that wow. audience felt it was important. So that's where that's where the disconnect is now. You've got, you know, I would hazard a guess that it's probably thirty percent, twenty to thirty percent of the sports properties are actually doing something about this stuff. Seventy percent of the brands want it. You can see the delta there. Yeah. So that that delta is going to drive the change. That delta is going to change properties to behave differently. Otherwise, they're going to have to find a new source of revenue. Um, in some cases, the better properties can just replace that sponsor with another one because there's still a lot of sponsors who don't care about purpose. So it's less of it's less of an issue. There's less pressure, but for the more fragile properties, it's more of an issue. Um, and so I think the change will will st will start to happen more at the kind of marginal properties than it will at the big ones. It's difficult for FIFA to change direction, right? Yeah. For all sorts of reasons: the politics, the inertia, the personalities, the the baggage. It's really difficult. It's a big ship. It's like turning an oil tanker around. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot easier for a smaller organisation. It's more nimble, like Formula E, for example. Yeah. I mean, it's easy easier for Formula E than Formula One to do this because there's no history. There's no, you know, there's no Bernie yeah, Eccleston in your history that didn't didn't care about this stuff. Yeah. Um, so you you can reinvent from day one. Um, so, but it'll change. And having said that, there are some there are some big big properties, some of the biggest in the world that have have identified this and are acting against it. Um, and so change is happening. Yeah. Change is definitely happening. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other opportunity I see here, Neil, you know, kind of looking forward as this change happens is the development of individuals to have the capacity to, um, cope with and advance this change. You know, I know there's some, there's some research in from the world of business and I, I again, I'll, I'll, I'll post a link or an article in the, in the program notes to this around the gap between the complexity of the challenges faced in, in modern business and the mental capacity of leaders within it to cope. Is that something that rings true to you in, in this space as well in, in sport? 100%, 100%, 100%. I think the truth is that most of the people running sport um, are probably there first because they they love sport and that was a it was an opportunity for them to, to, to do a follow a career in something they're passionate about or they just went into sport because of the lure of big money. Okay, so they, there's a certain type of person in sport, right? And you yeah. could probably draw draw a picture of them, right? They're all very, very similar. Yeah. Well, I, you know, just to, just to add to that, just to add to that, Neil, what I would uh, just from some research I, I did myself, you have lots of data-driven individuals within sport. You know, whether it's within recruitment, coaching, sports science, um, you know, data met, measuring data metrics. There's some very kind of process-driven uh, individuals working within sport. Hundred percent. They just they're only looking at part of the data set. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the, um, and then you'll find that in, you know, our, our experience is that the, the, the athletes, people running sport and the people running, managing sponsorship programs, the sponsors, the people running the sponsorship programs are way ahead of the people running sport 
um, and the athletes, to be honest, when it comes to this topic. Um, and that's because business has been on this for a while. I mean, this topic of, of conscious capitalism has been around for a while in business. Sport just hasn't been paying attention, right? Mm. I mean, there are how many now? 6,000 or I don't know. The number keeps going up every day, but multiple thousand B Corps yeah. uh, in the world today because they're, you know, there's not a single sport B Corp in the world. Not, not one. I, right, and that's great because sport. it's such an opportunity for somebody to take that first Exactly. Step. I mean, 17 sports, the first B Corp in sport. Um, not a single one. And that just shows you where, where sport is as a discipline or as a, as a field compared to the rest of business. So, so business is ahead of the curve in terms of its understanding of the issues, understanding what the fans care about, understanding the topics and understanding how to engage with it. Um, but it'll change. You know, again, there are more and more people, and especially as we have younger people entering the workforce, they're putting pressure um, you know, on these properties to change. So that's good. Well, that, that kind of brings us around nicely, uh, Neil, because what I was I was going to say was, um, again, your book, Legacy Spot, I'll hold it up for anybody who's watching on a video. Um, many of the case studies in the first part of the book are from the world of business, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm hoping there's going to be a second edition where the case studies are, are all sport-based uh, at, at some point in the future. Can you... Can you give us some hope that that's going to be the case? Are there some exciting projects right now that you're working on? Yeah, I'm not sure another book is one of them, Matt. Um, I've written, that was, that was, <laughs> I'll write it that for was you. My, that was, I'll write it for you. Yeah, well, maybe we should do it together. Um, that was my second book. And right, I don't know if you've written a book, it's a labor of love. Um, you know, so. Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. But there's not one plan for the immediate future. Um, but. Um, yeah, I, I think my focus right now and Fabian's focus well right now is just to is to do stuff. We don't want to write about it anymore. We want to just do it, um, and ho and hopefully the you know the results will be will be what drives people to want to try this stuff and gives them confidence to do it. I think I think at the end of the day, people just need permission, right? They just need permission to try this stuff, yeah, um, and just to try and do things differently. Um, so, I think the next five years will be really interesting for sport. I think that um, when we look back, if we were having this conversation in five years' time, and maybe we should make a, an appointment to do that, just reflect back on how far sport has come. I think sport will, will rise to the occasion. Um, and I think that we'll be talking about many, many... We won't just be talking about Formula E and uh, Ocean Race. We'll be talking about how the IOC has embraced purpose and changed the way that business operates. How FIFA at last kind of woke up to its senses and, and realized the power that it has to drive change. Um, those types of conversations. How Rugby World Cup is not just about um, entertainment, which I think is still, I think Rugby World Cup is still a bit caught in the past. Um, yeah, I think, it'll, I think it'll be a positive conversation. Well, I look forward to that conversation, Neil. Hopefully we don't have to wait five years for it. <laughs> I hope not too. My thanks again to Neil for sharing so many great insights into why engaging with purpose is really a cornerstone for organizations and individuals who want to fulfill their true potential, not just in sport, but in all walks of life and business. What was particularly interesting for me was Neil's personal journey to this realization, his own lived experience in South Africa during what was a truly transformative and hopeful period for civilization as we know it now. 
I had to go back actually and watch the Invictus movie and if you haven't seen it you really must that incredible true story of how Nelson Mandela and the Springboks captain Francois Pinar united their racially and economically fractured nation through a team that had previously been a symbol of white rule it just goes to show that there really is nothing that flattens social hierarchy quite like sport and when you pull people together around a common identity you have quite a unique opportunity to enable and accelerate social justice in a way that's beyond most governments and businesses considering the urgency of the challenges we face now as a global society it's probably more than just an opportunity actually for those in sport it's a responsibility but as neil said it really has to come from within Thanks also to you for listening to episode three. We're still in the early stages of our journey here. So if you like what you're hearing, please do subscribe, tell your friends and colleagues, and we'll be back soon with another conversation like this one on Wider Goals. Sports Social Podcast Network.